Today's reading is from excerpts from Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 2:21 through 24 and 3:20. The Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Um, chapter 2, f- verse 15 through 17. Chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 14. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining knowledge, for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. The Lord God said, Because you have done this, cursed are you. This is God's word. Please remain standing and join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to hear it preached today. Bless the heart of the hearer this morning. I pray your word would sink deep into our hearts. I pray we wouldn't forget it by tomorrow morning, but that we would apply it to our lives. And I pray we would seek you daily for wisdom from your truth. I pray for Kyle as he preaches your word this morning. Bless him and speak to his heart also as you use him to deliver your message to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, before we um, kind of expound on some of this text from Scripture, I just wanted to let you all know real quick um, that our dear Pastor Creeny, um, and I'm sure you know him and his family. Um, where is he? Oh, there he is. He's right there. Um, so he, um, him and his wife Helen and his boys are members of the church here, and he's one of our pastors. Well, um, recently he's decided that he wants to take a about a six-month sabbatical from his pastoral duties here at the church. Um, he's um, just a really dear friend and a good brother and just wants to do some soul care and, and rest and um, grow in faith and holiness, so I think that's wise. Um, so he's going to be doing that. He's still here. You'll still see him from week to week. Um, but we love him, but we just wanted to let you know that. Um, you know, So our normal, I guess, like pastoral meetings, he, he leads a... Um, he leads a, a Bible study on Saturdays that you'll notice in your, in your program. Some of those things are going to be paused for a little while. So, um, but yeah, just uh, pray for him. Pray that God just kind of rejuvenates his soul and leads him um, just to greater depths of love for Jesus. So just want to let you know that, um, so, um, just, just so that you're all aware. And, um, and it's, again, it's so good to see everybody this morning. I'm so excited about um, this sermon. <clears throat> I'm, so, I'm excited about the weeks to come, too, because... We're going to be really digging into sections of Genesis that deal with marriage. Um, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 talk um, actually a great length about the creation of man and women, woman and um, the institution and covenant of marriage um, we see right at the beginning of creation. And what a, what a special time that's going to be, and hopefully that will complement. We have another small group that meets on Thursday night. And all our small groups, by the way, are listed, not just Wednesday nights. You heard that one announced, but... We have a bunch of, uh, we call them gospel communities, which basically are small groups. They're opportunities to fellowship around the gospel of Christ um, with, other, um, with other believers in Jesus Christ. And if you're a seeker, to, um, to, to, to be there with us and to ask questions um, in a safe environment. You know, so um, if that's you, you're welcome. But anyway, um, we have a marriage one that meets on Thursday night. So hopefully the sermons to come as we expound in Genesis are going to explain about uh, the purpose and power of marriage, why God created it, what it resembles. It's going to be a lot of fun. So I couldn't recommend highly enough a, a wonderful book, by the way, called The Meaning of Marriage um, by Tim Keller. Um, it's really fantastic if you, want, if you want to get married, if you are married, or you never want to be married. Um, <laughs> it's, a <clears throat> it's a really fantastic book, um, and I think it would, will encourage not only your marriage or potential marriage, but your faith in Christ as well. But this morning, we're going to do something a little bit different. 
I want to start with a, a little story. I, I, for, I forgot my water somewhere. Mom, maybe you can uh, grab me some water. Thank you. That's my mom. <laughs> now, right now. <clears throat> um, <laughs> I apologize publicly for dis- dissing my mother last week. <laughs> I hope you know I was kidding. <laughs> She's a great mom. All right. <clears throat> Sometimes people, when they meet my mom, they say, <clears throat> I thought she was your, your wife. And I'm like, ew. <laughs> no. <clears throat> One day, Henny Penny was picking up corn in the rickyard when, whack, you guys know the story, an acorn hit her upon the head. Goodness gracious me, said Henny Penny, the skies are going to fall. I must go and tell the king. <clears throat> so she went along, and she went along, and she went along, until she met Cocky Locky. Where are you going, Henny Penny, says Cocky Locky. Oh, I'm going to tell the king the skies are falling, says Henny Penny. May I come with you, says Cocky Locky. Certainly, says Henny Penny. So Henny Penny and Cocky Locky went to tell the king the sky was falling. You guys are dismissed. No. As the, as the story continues, um, Henny Penny um, attracts other people. Um, Ducky Daddles and Goosey Pussy and Turkey Lurkey. The, she starts um, generating a following to go and tell the king that the sky is a falling. Um, so off they go to tell the king until they bump into bum, 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 Foxy Woxy, that sly fox. <clears throat> And this guy, he's clever. He's a clever fox. He lures this naive crew into his fox den. He says, basically, I know a quick shortcut to see the king come through this nice dark hole and basically has them for dinner. (laughs) If you read the original story, it's for kids, but it's very violent. It pictures the fox actually snapping the heads off of each one of them and eating them. I don't know why 100 years ago kids' stories were so incredibly scary um, but that's what happened. There's Foxy Woxy, tricked them all. Um, oh, and by the way, the only person that Foxy Woxy did not eat for dinner was the original antagonist, Henny Penny. She didn't even know that her friends got eaten, decides to go and lay an egg, and doesn't tell the king that the sky is falling. She forgets. Isn't that incredible? What a gal. <clears throat> now, if I told you <clears throat> that this was a true story, this really happened, you'd probably laugh at me, you'd probably scoff at me, you'd probably admit me to some kind of psychiatric ward at the local hospital, and I wouldn't blame you. You'd say, no, no, no. This is a story meant to illustrate, like, a lesson. The dangers of group fear, whatever, we can kind of comment on what it means and what we're supposed to learn from this little lesson. And you'd be right, that's exactly what this story is about. The reason I I did this this morning is because as we speak all across the United States, there are people who feel the same exact way about the Bible. The Bible um, is not a historical account of actual events. It's not true. Um, It's not really instructive for us on how to live our lives right before God. We don't really need to believe in Jesus. There isn't such a thing as heaven and hell. It's just nice stories meant to illustrate some kind of moral imperative. Does that make sense? So it's basically a a fiction, a tale, a nice a nice thing to get us to live us perhaps the right get us to live the right way um, and not be counterproductive in the society we live in. And that's basically how people view the book of Genesis. And not only the book of Genesis, but the whole Bible. I would even um, I would even suggest too that there are many actual churches and pastors who believe the same thing and why they actually still continue to do church and come in the name of Christ is beyond me. But it's still true that nevertheless, this is how people view scripture. Genesis chapter 1 through 3, we we read some selected texts from Genesis chapter 1 through 3 to kind of illustrate some of the themes that you find in the book of Genesis. Some of the themes that for for centuries, modern humanity has, has had a hard time swallowing. Um, one of the, some of the things that they refuse to believe 
that the Bible is an actual account because they refuse to accept that certain things that are said are even true. Some of the things that in Genesis 1 through 3 tell us is that there's a, cl- that there's a clear purpose for God's creation of the heavens and, and the earth. That the existence of God is assumed. That there is a God. That we can have a reasonable um, understanding of who he is. The purpose of his creation, we learn, is to bring in a kingdom that he rules over as a compassionate king. Um, the Bible tells us in Genesis 1-3 through things like that humankind, humanity, is created in the image of God. We learned that a little bit, I think, last week. That we have things in common with God, like a free will, a reason, a moral, that we know the difference between right and wrong. That humanity is... Uh, that, that humanity demonstrates God's image and that we're able to carry, out, carry around complex relationships. Because we are like God, we have intimate fellowship and relationship with each other that is unique from, say, the animal kingdom. We get married. Foxes don't, right? Fo- animals don't talk to each other and have friendships like this. We do. <clears throat> and, because, and that's what it's meant to be partly what it's meant to be created in God's image. We possess, ultimately, this understanding of God's presence and God's existence. Scripture says that eternity is written on our hearts. So what that means to me is that you've never found any dog or cat look up into the starry night sky and say, I wonder where I'm going when I die. (laughs) Right? We think about these things because we're created in the image of God. We're created to have relationship with our God. This is the Bible's testimony. We also, as image bearers, are meant to care for and rule over creation. And um, in spite of what Planet of the Apes might teach us, we technically rule this planet with our, with our power, intelligence, and whatnot. Now, now, like I said, before we move on more in depth to the meaning of marriage, from our Genesis text, I think it's important to ex- explain and, and think about more fully why Genesis chapter 1 through 3 can be trusted as an ad- adequate source for truth. It says a lot, so how can we know it's actually true? Uh, I mean, are these things just ridiculous stories that we, we um, should just kind of maybe giggle at and learn a lesson from, like Foxy Loxy over there? <clears throat> Not many people, I don't think, will deny that the Bible, in principle, is a, help, a helpful source of wisdom. So you might, you might be sitting here this morning, and you might at least admit that you can learn some things about life from the Bible, but it's not true. It's not true. It's not historically accurate. Um, the things that it commands of us, we don't really have to do, things like this. It's just more meant to be um, helpful in our understanding of life, Okay. So not many people are going to deny, though, in principle, that the Bible is a helpful source of wisdom, like lots of other sources um, of ancient and modern types of philosophers and sages, right? So we can comb through Homer's Iliad and Odyssey and, and learn a lot about human passion and resolve and determination, right? You can read Shakespeare and no doubt, um, get a, no doubt understand that he just had a firm grasp on the pitfalls and vices and virtues of humanity. So from Mohammed to Hemingway, we just have a treasury of human wisdom, and some of it's helpful, some of it's not, <laughs> right? But no one, no one picks up these ancient Greek or Roman mythologies and thinks that they're true or real. We, we try to get the, the principle from it and learn something about life. So is the Bible just another henny penny, <laughs> another product of human imagination, let me, let me just say something really bold and daring. If that's true, then we shouldn't be Christians. We might, we might get something from the Bible. We might learn something, you know, but we can learn something from lots of pieces of literature. I should not be a Christian, though. I should not be a follower of Jesus Christ. It would be foolish to put all my eggs in that basket if the Bible is a made-up story, you see? Churches should just shut down. That's just the honest truth. Um... We could maybe be philosophers or humanitarians, and we could gain insight from the uh, beautiful myths of the Bible and other sacred texts. But followers of Jesus, well, that would just be foolish. It would be foolish to see Scripture as a chief authority, to get comfort from it in times of 
trial or tragedy. So this is a very important issue. Either the Bible is the word of God or it's not. And if it's not, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't read it. I'm just suggesting that we shouldn't take it too seriously. And isn't that kind of the message that you hear from people? You know, you take it too seriously. But if the Bible is the word of God, if it is true, that changes everything. So we got some important questions to answer. we got to ask these hard questions sometimes about Scripture critically and think through it and not just presume that it is completely untrue because there are things like miracles. Can I suggest to us that if we have a hard time with miracles, it's just because of the day and age that we live in. People all across this world and all across time and history haven't had a problem believing in miracles, but we do. It's not because I think we can logically determine if they are true or not. It's just because of where we've been raised. So friends, this is an important question. I want to look for clues from our, in, in Genesis chapter 1 through 3 that would point to its veracity, that it's, it's authenticity, that we can trust it, in other words. You know, can we verify, authenticate some of these claims um, as kind of true to life? And that's what I want to do this morning. Now, I, this is a very loaded question. You can get volumes written on this. So I'm going to talk about it for 20 minutes. So I'm not going to do it justice. But we can, if you have further questions, we can talk about it. And there are really good resources um, if, you want to, if you want to follow that rabbit trail. Okay? So this morning, Genesis chapters 1 through 3 is our text. And we've gone over a lot of it so far in our, in our, um, in our studying of it over the past uh, couple of months. Genesis, if you're new, is the very first book of the Bible. Um, it's right at the front, you know, so it's easy to find if you're new. Um, but it's the very first book of the Bible, and it's the, it's the book of beginnings. It talks a lot about, you know, how did the world start? What did God do to begin it? Um, the entrance of sin, all these, all these things, are the beginnings of things. Um, the first promise that God would provide uh, a Savior um, through Jesus Christ. You know, so that's why it's in the beginning of the Bible, because it describes things that happened um, in the beginning of time. So Genesis chapter 1 through 3 is our text. Um, we're not going to expound on any passage in particular. I just want to look at some principles that we read um, from the text that we can gather from the text. For example... Um, in our text, we read that there's a God who created and designed all things, including the first man and woman. That's pretty clear. In the beginning, God created, created the heavens and the earth. God formed man out of the dust of the ground and then, at, then Eve out of his side. Creation, another thing that we read, we didn't read this part, but creation reproduces after its own kind. Therefore, all species have a common ancestor. So scripture teaches that Adam and Eve were the first human beings and that they are all our mom and dad. You know, like that's basically what the Bible is trying to say here. Um, it, it says, this is, this is incredible, you might have missed this just from the reading, but that human marriage is not a human invention. It's, a, it's not a social contract that we made up in, the, the, um, in some kind of dark ages of the past. But it's actually tied into our nature as divine image bearers. There's something about marriage that reflects God's character and God's person, in other words. Right? Man and woman fell, this is another thing it teaches, fell into sinful rebellion, resulting in the curse, the curse of death. You see all these things kind of talk, talked about, but here, here we got to ask a question. Does, do these measure up? Are these things true? Is there any evidence for these things outside of the testimony of Scripture? What does our experience teach us about some of these principles that the Bible teaches? So I want to look at some of the clues to verify Genesis chapter 1 through 3, and I hope that this is helpful in developing your faith and trust in the authenticity of Scripture and your faith in God in general. But number one, let's look at this. Evidence would suggest that all human beings are racially one. In other words, there is a first mom and a first dad by which we all came from. That's what the Bible says. And by the way, Evan would, evidence would suggest outside of Scripture that this is actually true. So the Bible seems to suggest that only Adam and Eve were the special creation of God. So in other words, the Bible seems to teach that God didn't create Adam and Eve and then after them created like a thousand more people. The Bible doesn't say that anywhere. It seems to suggest that Adam and Eve were the first creation 
And from them, you remember from the scripture, Eve is the mother of all living. That's what it says. So it seems to suggest that Adam and Eve were the special creation of God, the only humans that were the special creation of God. The logical conclusion that would follow is that all humanity is an extension of these first parents. So if all human beings go back to one ancestral couple, we, this would suggest that we would be able to breed with each other, that all races and nationalities would be able to breed with each other, and we can, by the way. So evidence and bi- biology would suggest that this is actually true. See? Now, Rebecca Can, Mark Stone King, and Alan Wilson, these were scientists, not Christians, they're advocates of something called the Eve hypothesis. Um, it's also known as mitochondrial Eve. Now, through, through their research of the mito- mitochondrial DNA, I know nothing about this. This is just something, an article I read. But through their research of mitochondrial DNA in 147 different people on five different countries, this was in 1987, they learned that all human beings must go back to a single woman. Right? We already knew that. Where faith comes in is that we know her name, <laughs> right? So maybe it was Eve, maybe it was Noah's wife, if you know anything about the Bible, but, but who knows? But at least it verifies the fact that when scientists actually study this, they confirm that we're all related, <laughs> right? We have the same mom and same dad if you go back long enough. And science has verified this. In 1991, another team of scientists confirmed this conclusion in an, in an article titled the structure of human mitochondrial DNA variation in the, in the Journal of Molecular Evolution. So scientists, secular scientists, are actually saying what the Bible has said for centuries and millennia, that we have a common ancestor. Now their theory suggests things that aren't talked about in Genesis, but their discoveries at least prove that Genesis, the Genesis story is possible. You see what I mean? That it's possible. And not only is it possible but it actually happens like that, okay? You can't suggest the Bible's claims to be false or fictional because of the idea of common ancestry. That's what I'm saying. You can't say it can't be true because how did we all come from one man and one woman? Well, science has confirmed that we did. A common uh, critique of this, though, I want to call the icky critique. And it basically goes like this. Now, let's just do the math, friends. Let's just be honest. If Adam and Eve were the only humans and the only people reproducing, what would that mean about their kids if they were to reproduce? Well, you know, you'd have to do something with your brother or with your sister. Ick. That's just icky. So if Adam and Eve were the only special creation of God by which all other human beings came to be, it would require at least two sets of brothers and sisters, or one set of brothers and sisters, to interbreed, right? And follow, you know, following maybe an aunt, an uncle, or a cousin, but that doesn't make it any better, right? It's still a little bit icky. Not just icky, oh, no, we're not going to do that. <clears throat> but just here, here's the thing. Just because we think something is gross doesn't mean it's not true, right? What's more, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how the earth became populated after the, crea- the creation of Adam and Eve. It doesn't say that. We presume it came about normally, um, w- which would require, at least in some sense, interbreeding of family, which is, you know, disgusting in our minds. But it, uh, is it possible that because... You know, there are problems also. In our minds, we think if you do that nowadays, you end up having deformities and all these different things. You can't do that. But is it possible that because Adam and Eve were created specially and uniquely by God himself, um, that this created a scenario that might have prevented these types of birth defects? See? In other words, is it possible that genetic complications result more from time and process you see is it possible that eve produced so many children do you know that the bible says that adam died when he was 934 i think 934 so presumably eve 
probably lived um, an extremely long period of time as well. You see? So you can have a lot of babies in 900 years, can't you? I think I did the math. Like if you take 500 of those years, right, and 500 of those years and you have 10 babies a year, well, no, that's not possible. <laughs> One, right? Don't, yeah, everyone's leaving now. I just want one baby. You can, you can have, what, three or four hundred children? Imagine that, three or four hundred children. Over a period of time, isn't it possible that you wouldn't even know the majority of your family? Right? So some of the ickiness, maybe not, it might not be quite so icky. Right? One author remarks this, by the way. He said, like, oh, this is ridiculous. You see, this is why I don't believe in the Bible. Okay, well, let's just think about evolution, all right? Here's another issue to consider, and I'm quoting this. If one accepts the evolutionary hypothesis as to the origin of the human race, has that really relieved the issue of incest? Follow this. Not unless you also propound the idea of the evolution of many pairs of beings, pre-human or whatever, at the same time simultaneously. No matter what theory of the origin of the human race one may take, are we not driven to the conclusion that in the early history of the race, there was the need for intermarriage of the children of the same pair? What he's saying is, assume evolution is true, right? I'm some kind of advanced monkey, and I give birth to a human being, right? Unless there's other advanced monkeys who at the same exact time gave birth to human beings then that would have to mean that I would have to have another, unless that happened, it would have to mean I would have to have another baby by which those two human beings would breed and therefore the human um, race could, could grow and be fruitful. You see what I'm saying? So he's saying it's the same problem. You have the same problem. So you can't say, oh, Genesis talks about inbreeding and incest. That's disgusting. It can't be true. Well, evolution, if for evolution to be true, it would have to mean the same exact thing. So you can't, you see what I mean? You can't do that. You can't go there. Science seems to confirm, by the way, the biblical idea of common ancestry in spite of these things. Number two, I want to look at this. I think this is interesting. The universality of the consequences of the fall of humankind. The universality of the consequences of the fall of humankind. The Bible teaches that in Adam, we have all sinned and bear the consequence of sin, which is death. Okay? Wherever you find human beings, you find sinners. You're not going to find any person anywhere without some kind of understanding of right and wrong. You're not going to find anywhere who has not violated, in some sense, what they know to be wrong. Why is this? Think about this. We know certain things, not because we were taught them, but because we were just, we have this moral compass, this sense, a conscience of certain things that are right and wrong. This is universal and it is timeless, and yet we still violate our own conscience. Why on earth would any of us, knowing something is wrong, do it anyway? Right? Forget God. Forget the Bible. Just take your own mind. Why would you do this? Why on earth would any of us know something is wrong and still violate it? You see, the Bible explains that. It's because we're sinners. It's because Adam and Eve sinned and the curse of sin passed on to us. We are born in sin. So you're not going to find anyone, any person anywhere who doesn't know the difference between right and wrong and likewise has not broken or violated their own conscience. The Bible calls this God's law. It's what we call sin as Christians. If the Bible weren't true, it would seem that you might be able to find someone out there who has kept the Ten Commandments never broken any one of them, even accidentally, right? But it's just not true. How many people can say that in here? You've never broken the Ten Commandments. How many people can say at least for some of them that I don't believe the Bible, but yeah, it's wrong to do that, and you've still done it? (laughs) We do it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ many will be made alive, right? In Adam, all die. So when we read in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve violated God's law, disobeyed him, that somehow 
that fall transferred into all their progeny, that they became sinful, all of us, born in sin. And if that weren't true, you would suspect that some people would not be sinners, right? Romans chapter 4, in the New Testament, there's this letter called Romans, and it reads, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned, the many died by the trespass of the one man. See, that's the testimony of the Bible. The Bible says the reason we violate our own conscience is because our mitochondrial dad fell in sin, and that sin, the curse of sin, came to us. And not only the curse of sin, but the result of sin, which is death. It explains why we die. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans chapter 3. The wages of sin is death, because all have sinned, all die. Sin by their nature passed on to us as a curse from our father Adam. So all have been the recipient of God's judgment of sin, namely death. All people die. Again, if the Bible weren't true, there may may be at least maybe one person that we could think of that has never died or never sinned. Or, Or at the very least, we would suspect that maybe science can find a cure to death that we'll all just kind of live forever. You see, the Bible says that that's not the case. And nature verifies this, because we all die, and we all violate our, our, our even own heart's law, our own conscience. The third thing that I think we can kind of authenticate the message of Genesis with is this um, power of marriage. And again, like I said, we're going to talk about this, um, hopefully more in the weeks to come, I'm about what marriage is, but I want to introduce it um, right now. The power of marriage. Now, I think this is really important. Genesis seems to teach that marriage is more than just a means to populate the earth or some kind of social construct to kind of protect society, right, each other from harm. It says, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. So who is orchestrating the marriage? It's God. God is setting up Adam. (laughs) He is arranging the marriage because he created the marriage. What's implied here as well is that marriage is not just um, two people that think the other one is cool, right? You're attracted to each other. They're really cute. What a hottie, right? We get along. We both like Ninja Turtles. You know, all these different... Yeah, isn't that great? Let's be friends. The Bible says that marriage actually is a union of body and soul, that there is something supernatural, something soulish that happens in the union of man and woman. Now, this is incredible because if that's true then that means that to end the marriage, to break the marriage, is going to be a form of death to you. Now, how many people who have never read the Bible, who have never learned anything about God, know that to be true? That when you get married, that there is something, whether you like it or not, powerful about it, and when it ends, it is destructive. It is devastating. You see, friends, we can scorn the word of God, but it will always bite us back. And we can say, oh, it's not true. I'm not going to follow it. Well, good luck. Good luck, friends. This isn't meant to hurt you. It's, it's meant to cause you to thrive. You see, this is bone of my bones, flesh. The sex act in marriage brings two people into one unit, initiating a marriage unity. Okay? Now, we're going to talk a lot more about this. Aren't you excited we're going to talk about sex at church in the weeks to come? Body and soul. The sex act brings two people into one unit, initiating a marriage unity. Body and soul, not just body. The two become one. In the New Testament, we learn that the two are so one that to separate the two is like killing something of the other person. That's what the Bible says. It's why the Bible forbids divorce. It's why it 
forbids it with, a cu- with only two exceptions. Okay? And those two exceptions presume that the marriage was already killed by you to begin with. You see? <clears throat> the Bible forbids it for this reason, because it's so devastating to the human soul and condition. What God has brought together, let no man separate. Scripture says, what God has brought together, well, what are you talking about? Every single marriage is like a mar- the marriage of Adam and Eve. You see? God brought them together. God took Eve out of Adam, brought them together. The two became one. Every single marriage after, they're the prototype. Every single marriage after is God bringing two people into one unit, so let them not be separate. Bible, the Bible talks about marriage as a covenant in Malachi chapter 2. And know that's kind of like religious language. What does that even mean? It's basically a covenant. This is a, a textbook definition. A covenant is an elective family-like relationship of obligation established under divine sanction. In other words, it is a promise that you make to be faithful to another person in the presence of God. In other words, if I break this, may God smush me like a worm. That's what it's saying. God, I'm making this promise before God and not man. And why do we do that? Why do we make the promise before God and not man? Well, what God has brought together, let no one separate. You see? There is a power of marriage. It's only permitted by covenant. You see, because of the power of sex, which brings the body and soul into union with the two, it's only permitted in Scripture to those in covenant with each other. You see, friends, the the act of sexual union is more than just a good time. It's actually demonstrating physically the spiritual phenomenon of marriage. And when you have sexual union with another person, it's as if you're marrying them. And how many people know that the early days of maybe sexual experimentation were devastating to you? Because you know why? Because the first person that you gave that to, it was as if you married them and now it's over. And you're devastated. It's, be- it's because that's what sexual unity is supposed to depict. A permanent, lifelong bond to each other that cannot be separated, but we don't treat it like that. Okay? Now we're going to talk more about this and how it relates to, uh, we're going to talk more about this covenant and sexual union, but s- suffice it to say for now that Adam and Eve were joined into marriage. And if marriage is instituted by God under divine sanction, uniting body and soul, you might suspect to see marriage upheld with a version of this power and therefore respected in all cultures. And you say, well, you know, they're, they're, we got you there because marriage isn't respected in our cultures. And I would agree to an extent, but friends, we all know marriage still exists, doesn't it? We still do this thing. It's still important to us. It's still devastating when it ends. Right? If, if we're so advanced and we're so cultured and so intelligent, why don't we just get rid of this thing? And just, you know, do what we want to do. But that's not what happens in culture because we are designed differently. Marriage is everywhere. It's always been everywhere. Sex is everywhere. Sex has always been everywhere. And sex outside of marriage has always damaged the soul and society and divorce likewise. Now, if the Bible were not true, you might expect society to thrive in spite of divorce and and, and certain promiscuity, but it doesn't. It can't. Maybe at some point we would be unfazed by adultery, right? Who cares? I can shake another woman's hand. Why not sleep together, right? (laughs) I might be patted on the back by another woman. My wife doesn't care about that. Why not? You know, what's the difference? We can reason like this. Unless it's something more. You see, and, and we know that instinctually it is more, and the Bible tells us why. You see? So if, if marriage and sexual union does not do what God says it does, it's sim- if it's simply a biological function and not a creation of God to unify hearts and souls of two people, then I'd agree. But experience shows us that it is much more, and the, the Bible explains why. The power of marriage, I think, authenticates the testimony of 
uh, scripture in the book of Genesis. Okay? Number four, evidence of design by the God of scripture also, I think, verifies the claims of Genesis. If the God of scripture, um, if the God of scripture designed creation, then you would expect that creation would sort of resemble his attributes as described by scripture. Does that make sense? If the God of scripture created all things, then you would expect the created thing to sort of resemble him. Right? And that's exactly what we see. And let me explain to you how in a few different ways. The first way that we can see this is that the Bible describes God as a unity, in a plurality. He is one in three. You guys have ever heard of this before, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that there is one God who is three in person. They are all God, but there are not three gods. There is one God. This is mysterious. It seems as a paradox to us, but the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all divine, three different persons of the Godhead, yet one God. So this seems odd to us, but let's look at creation and see if we can sort of verify this phenomena in creation. I think that we can. The Bible says, let us make God in our image, baptize them in the name, the one singular name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? The one name of God, three in person, one God. A, strict, a strictly singular God might create a universe very boring, very, very one-dimensional, a singular substance, right? But we don't see that. We see this plurality all over us, all over the universe, in our own nature, right? Body, soul, spirit, all these different things, in our relationships, in creation. There is a complexity, a plurality of substances all around us. And that's what we would expect from a God who is three in one, a universe that is also complex and teeming with variety, you see? Number two, death in the universe implies a creator. Matter is winding down. Did you know this? The sun is burning out, right? Like at some point the earth isn't going to be here. Scientists know this. Everything's winding down. And if everything is winding down, it implies a beginning, a start. And if there is a start, it implies a being who has none. And that's exactly how the Bible is, des describes the God of Scripture. That he has no beginning and has no ending. He is the ancient of days, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. See, God is the one who does not need a creator because he always was. See, the fact that things wind down implies that there is a being who does not wind down, and that's exactly how Scripture describes God. So death in the universe implies a creator. That's number two. Number three, the, conting the contingency of the universe implies a creative will. And contingency means like a dependency, contingent on something. You're dependent on something. Matter depends, needs something outside itself for life. Right? You don't, in other words, you don't need me to live. Right? And I don't need you to live. I need something to live. You see, I, I don't live on my own. There was a point where I was not, and there was a point um, where I won't be again. <laughs> right? So the universe does not depend on me to live. And it doesn't depend on you. So the contingency of the universe implies a creative will. Matter depends on something. The created thing needs something outside of its life for it to exist. And Revelation chapter 4 verse 11 um, authenticates this. You created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. It says of Jesus Christ in the New Testament that he upholds all things together by the power of his word. That means he continues us. He holds us together. The reason gravity works, the reason our heart pumps and our blood flows through our veins, the reason my eyeball the continues functioning the way it's supposed to is because Jesus Christ, this is the point, this is the message of Scripture, Jesus Christ causes all of that to continually work by his own continued power. Isn't that incredible? That if all of a sudden he just decided to stop thinking about it all, we would disappear into a pile of dust. <laughs> 
Number four, though, the beauty of the universe implies a beautiful creator. I like that one. The world at times looks beautiful to you, doesn't it? You look at a sunset, you look at a person, whatever it might be, and you might think, oh, how wonderful, how beautiful this is. We also know the difference between something that is beautiful and something that is not. We know the difference between right and wrong, right? Ugly actions versus beautiful ones. You may have had a bad father, for example, or a bad mother, but doesn't that speak to the fact that you know what a good mother and a good father should be? Why do you know the difference between right and wrong, beautiful and ugly? It's because we have a beautiful God who is perfect in all his ways, who is righteous and good altogether. You see, that's how we know. We can distinguish between these two things because we are designed that way. Because our God can do these things, and our God um, has made us to do the same. And lastly, I want to look at this, that the decay and death in the universe points to God willing to sacrifice for his children. And this is really important. We talked a little bit about death in a previous point, but this kind of looks at it from a different angle. Why have such an immense and ancient universe to simply display God's glory to you? How many stars have had to burn out, animals have had to die, trees burned to the ground, all these different things. It seems like if God created all of this simply to reveal his glory to you, that it would be a monumental waste. All of these things just kind of wasting and dying at the immensity and the ancientness of it. You see what I mean? And what's more... Why would he orchestrate the birth of his son Jesus for the sole purpose of dying on a cross? Romans chapter 8, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You see, the, the gravity of decay that we see in the universe should point us to the fact that decay need not be. That that, that decay is almost a a foreign concept. That death should not be. That death is the result of sin. And Jesus Christ is the solution, the answer. All of this should point us to the fact that God sacrifices for his children and is willing to sacrifice because of his great love for you. Isn't that great? God is willing to, it's typified in all the decay and all the the death that we see around us. It's a demonstration that God would die for us through his son Jesus Christ. You see, friends, this talk is a lot more, has a lot more to do with simply trusting or verifying the book of Genesis in Genesis chapter 1 through 3. There's some really bold and amazing implications about these things, if they're true. The first, I think, implication is that we need a love relationship with our God. That we were created for this purpose. That you're not here simply to make friends, be married, have children, work a job, and then die. You see, God created you with So much more purpose than that. Those things are wonderful things. But scripture talks about those things being a shadow of Christ. In other words, a lesson. That he wants those things with you. That he wants to be wed to you. The Bible calls the church the bride of Christ. And Christ the bridegroom. It says that we have a friend in God through Christ. We all cherish our friendships in intimacy, but you were created for that so that you could have it with God himself. We need a love relationship with God. Do you have one? Do you have a love relationship with God through Christ? You see, it's not a concept. It's not an idea. It's not a thing we believe about God. It's a relationship we have with him. You see, God is more than that. God is more than just the inventor of a toaster oven. And he doesn't really care where it is. He loves you. He made you to love him. 
See, friends? And the Bible says the first act of love towards God is repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. To turn from your sin to all the other gods that you've served and trusted in, to trust in Jesus Christ. To be reunited with your heavenly Father. Isn't that great? You need a love relationship with God, and you can have one this very moment by simply turning to him in faith. Another bold implication is that sin separates us from his love, and it results in death. You see, friends, this is one of the hardest things to navigate and talk about, I think, with other people. Because I have not met a living soul who has ever thought that they were going to a worse place, at least in our culture. Almost everybody thinks that when they die, they're going to be okay. That there's some kind of afterlife, that they'll be safe, and that they'll be okay. Some people may believe that they'll just you know, be worm food or whatnot, and I guess that's not so bad, as long as they're not alive, suffering in some other place. But everyone, everyone thinks they're okay. Everyone thinks they're fine. We all kind of acknowledge we do wrong things, but we're not that bad. Right? Our sin isn't that consequential. But the Bible says that sin actually separates us from a love relationship with our good God. It separates us from him, and the imagery it uses and the physical actuality of it is death. That in death, without a remedy for our sin, we are eternally forever separated from God. A second death, the Bible calls it. Void of love forever. And you say, oh, how harsh. But that's the road we choose, friend, when we choose to scorn the Lord, the good God who made us. The other thing it teaches us is that his law is meant to maximize our joy and not give us a hard time. <laughs> right? Sin in us is what makes us think that his law is meant to give us a hard time. So what I'm saying here is that, for example... When you honor marriage, there's going to be benefits to your life. There's going to be pleasure that you receive from it. You see, that law, when it's honored, actually advances your own prosperity and joy and peace inwardly. When I actually obey scripture and love my wife, and she likewise, I'm I'm the beneficiary of great blessing from that. But if I resist it, and if I say no to it, it's a heavy weight and burden on my shoulders. And I think many of us know, if you're married or used to be, the truth behind that. And that's exactly what I mean. We can scorn that. We can say, no, that's not true. But we all know that it's going to bite us back if we don't listen to it. You see, friends, the law of God is not meant to make our lives difficult, but it's meant to help us thrive and to have joy. All the knowledge of joy, beauty, Love, creativity, and life are in you by design because the designer is like this. That's another implication of Genesis chapter 1 through 3. Now think about this. This is fantastic. If you fell asleep for the whole sermon because it was a little maybe involved, then wake up for this part because this is fantastic. Some people in this room absolutely love to play music and you're excellent at it. What this means to me is that the reason you do and the reason you're good at it is because God's like that. And God, you are like God. I'm going to talk about my mother for a good thing today, okay? <laughs> if, if you know my mom, um, she cleans everything, even when it's clean, right? She's a cleaner. She's an organizer. She's very orderly. How many people know that about my mom, if you know my mom? Yeah, you all, every hand went up. My dad's got two hands. My stepdad. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> he knows. So, so my mom's like, well, why is my mom like that? Well, because our God is a God of order. Our God sprinkled out the universe in an incredibly orderly way. You see? You see, friends, you can think about all of the ways in which God has designed you and, and remember that the reason that you're like that, the reason you like to cook, the reason you like history, the reason you like to write poems, or whatever it might be, is because you're like God. God's like that. That's fantastic for me. That, me- that means, and here's the tremendous implication, 
that means that I can worship Jesus Christ just as much washing dishes as I, as I can praying. Because I can give him glory. He's the great dishwasher. <laughs> right? Some of you wish that he lived with you. <laughs> Wash your dishes for you. But right? He, is, he, he makes you like this. He's why you like things clean if you like things clean. Oh, and by the way, he's why you like things dirty if you like things dirty. Right? Some people are like that. They like the wildness of a thing. The jungle, right? They, they love the, the approach of it, right? You're like that because our God's a wild God too. Friends, I'm not saying that everything that we do and everything that we think is from God because some of it's sin. But my point is there's something about you that is so God-like that you should worship Jesus for it and come to him in repentance and faith so that you can actually thrive in your own person. Does that make sense? The greatest implication, I think, of Genesis chapter 1 through 3 is that death is a foreign concept in God's creation. He didn't create us to die. Death was a consequence of rebellion. You know, that's hard news, but here's the good news. If death wasn't supposed to ever be, that means that God can do something about it. That we never have to die. That in Christ, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that every grave that you ever go into, that in Christ you will emerge out of. Isn't that amazing? Every failed marriage, every dead friendship, every lost job, every actual death, you're going to emerge out of it in Christ. Genesis 1-3 through 3 is more than a history lesson, and it's more than true propositions. It is a marriage proposal from God to you. The God of all creation set aside his crown to rescue sinners so that you can be part of his kingdom restored. Do you believe that? Would you come to him this morning and trust in Jesus Christ? I hope that this morning your faith was more equipped, that your confidence is greater in Jesus and in Scripture. But most importantly, I hope that you have been drawn to your good king, the bridegroom, who loves you dearly. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning and for this service. I thank you, Lord, that um, we can trust your holy book. God, that it's not henny-penny. God, that we know that we can have confidence that Jesus Christ is alive, risen from the dead, and that what you have revealed in your word is actual, it's real. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know Jesus Christ, that they would come to repentance and faith and trust in him. You are created, friend, in God's image. He created you for a love relationship with him beyond comparison. That makes you incredibly valuable, incredibly worth, worth some. It, it means you have incredible worth. Would you come to him? Would you accept his proposal that J Jesus Christ died for sinners like you? That when you put your trust in him, it's gone forever and you are promised a place in God's kingdom. Come to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Friends, if that's you, cry out to God. Tell him right now in the silence of your own heart, I'm a sinner. And I believe that Christ, your son, God in the flesh, died on a cross, a penalty that I deserve to die myself. Thank you. Friend, if that's you, your sins are forgiven. If your heart is trusted in Christ, you belong to him. Please pray with me after service. Come find me if you feel like as if you want to know more about this or you've come to faith in Christ. I'd love to pray with you. And God, as we continue, Lord, to... <clears throat> worship you um, now through the symbolism of your supper. I thank you, God, that we can sing, sing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we can preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that we can symbolize the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news 
that you have died and resurrected. God, your body was broken for us. Your blood was shed for us. When it should have been us on that cross dying uh, a God-forsaken death, God, it was your son. And God, as your people, we approach you right now trusting that you have redeemed us in Christ. We love you, God, and we thank you, Lord, for this time uh, that we'll get to participate um, in your supper. In Jesus' name, amen.